I'm really excited to be here this morning and to share with you just a bit of what I think God has put on my heart. It's my hope that we're going to leave this morning having caught just a little glimpse of God's real goodness to us. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the character of God, haven't we? We've been digging deep into who he is, truth, older than time itself, about who he is. I've been loving it. We've been trying to get our heads around the fact that he is immutable. He does not change. That he is eternal. He had no beginning and he'll have no end. That he is omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere all at once. That he is omniscient, all-knowing. And today, we're going to be looking at the fact that God is good, always good. That's the title of this talk. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that God is good. And it's my hope that that is what we are going to do this morning. If you think about it, All his other characteristics are only attributes to be celebrated if God is indeed good. If he isn't good, then the fact that, you know, his immutability is frightening, isn't it? The fact that he is everywhere all at once, that he is eternal, is horrifying. Everything rests on his goodness. Everything rests on his goodness. So this morning, we are going to wrestle with God's goodness. Now, you might be thinking, wrestle? Why do we need to wrestle with God's goodness? Surely, this is the easy one to grasp, right? It was his immutability we found it hard to get our heads around. His omnipresence that blew our minds. His easiness, his goodness to gra- is, easy. His goodness is easy to grasp. But actually, in our day, in our society, more than any other characteristic of God, his goodness is under attack. Our society says there is no God, but if there is, then he is not good. And by extension, neither are we as Christians. Many atheists look at the Bible and see in there a God who isn't good. It's actually easy pickings in there. Easy pickings, child's play to look and see a God that isn't good. I mean, think about it. We call God good, yet this is the God who drowned men, women, and children in a worldwide flood. This is the God who wiped out nation after nation so that his chosen nation could flourish. This is the God who required sacrifice after sacrifice, bloodied animals burning upon an altar to appease an angry God. This is the religion whose center revolves around unspeakable violence. God torturing his own son to death in the cruelest of ways, turning his back on him, abandoning him. This is a religion that won't shut up about sin and shame. And in case you're thinking that most of the examples I've given here are from the Old Testament and that God has been on a couple of anger management courses and reinvented himself in the person of a meek and mild politically correct Jesus, just listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. The Son of Man will send out his angels And they will gather from the kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there is a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does this sound like a good God to you? Are you still sure it's easy to say that God is good? Is this really something we want to be part of in the 21st century? 
You see, I believe God is good. I believe he is always good. But on the same side of that coin that says God is good, if you flip it over, you will find something that we struggle to see the goodness in, even as Christians. You will find the word severity. Romans 11:22. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. And I put it to you that we live in a society and to an extent churches in this nation that encourage us to show only one side of the coin, the side that says God is good. J.I. Packer says this, he wrote this in 1973 and I think it's even more true today than it was when he wrote it. People today are in the habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from that of his severity. And we must seek to wean them from this habit since nothing but misbelief is possible as long as it persists. I think we have seen not only misbelief but unbelief work its way through our society as the result of a misunderstanding of how to marry God's goodness and his severity when actually I believe that we cannot love people and we cannot say that God is good unless we have both sides of the coin. His goodness and his severity have to come together or he is not good at all. And that, my friends, is what we are going to be wrestling with this morning. So before we go on, before we begin and dig in deep, we just need to quickly define what I mean by severity. It will become much clearer as the morning progresses, but what I mean when I'm talking about severity is the way that God deals with us when we step outside of the good boundaries that he's given us. The Bible calls that sin. We could call God's severity his wrath. We could call it his justice, people getting what they deserve. We could call it his judgment. That is the sort of thing that I'm talking about when I mention severity. And it doesn't sit comfortably with us, does it? We are going to see this morning that it is much kinder than we could ever possibly imagine. So, where do we start? Let's start with where we are right now. July 2022, Great Britain. We live in a society that wants to say there is no ultimate truth. And therefore, there are no real restrictions. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. You do you. That's what our society wants to say, and it comes out of the worldview that says there is no God, that we're all an accident. And if we're all an accident, then it follows quite logically, and it does, that there is no right or wrong. There's nobody higher than us in charge. It is just a dog-eat-dog free-for-all. Now, the only problem with this, I don't know if you've noticed this too, is that nobody, I've never met a single person that actually lives like this is true. Have you met anybody that lives their lives like this is true? Nobody lives like there is no God. Nobody lives like there is no right or wrong. Everyone has inside them a moral compass that says this thing is right, this thing is wrong. We might not agree on what that right and wrong necessarily look like, but we definitely live like there is truth. And there is right and wrong. You see this outplayed all the time in society. Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Everyone in the West is horrified. But why? Why shouldn't he invade Ukraine? If there is no God, if there's genuinely no one in charge, why shouldn't he? It's just a dog-eat-dog world. You do you, Putin. Get what you can while you can. Tomorrow you die. When we look at some of the horrific cases in the news recently of child abuse... We feel shocked and saddened. We want justice for those children. We want people called to account over it. Why? 
Why shouldn't people treat their children however they want if we're all an accident, if there is no God? People and their consciences, in my opinion, are one of the single biggest arguments for the existence of God that there is. When you look at how people act, they want to see right promoted. They want to see evil squashed. They want to see compassion and kindness spread and justice served to people like Putin and child abusers. Why? It doesn't make any sense if we're all in an accident, but it does make a whole lot of sense if we've been made in the image of a good God. We have been made by a God who has put that knowledge of right and wrong in our hearts. Deep down, we all agree there should be consequences for wrongdoing. Deep down, we know goodness and severity have to come together in order for justice to be served. Now, you might say to me, this is all very well, but what do you actually mean by this? What are you talking about goodness and severity coming together? Let me explain like this. I've got five kids, right? Supposing tomorrow morning I wake them up and I say, kids, I am turning over a whole new leaf. I want to be a really good mum. I want to be the very definition of goodness. And therefore, children, there are no longer any rules. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. You know, treat each other however you like. Eat what you like, when you like. Go to bed whenever you fancy. Go out, roam the streets. Don't bother telling me where you're going. Whatever makes you happy, you do you. What would be the consequences of my parenting like that? Well, it would be horrendous, wouldn't it? It would be dangerous. My children would feel unloved, insecure, unsafe. I'm sure it wouldn't be long before social services were knocking on the door, wondering why my kids were running around the park at midnight, all alone and high on sweets. If I want to be a good parent, if I truly love my children, I have to give them boundaries. Otherwise, they aren't safe. Otherwise, I can't call myself a good parent. And God is a good parent. We can see that, can't we? He has to give us boundaries or he isn't good or he doesn't love us. A good God would give us the boundaries we so clearly want and need. When my eldest son, Tom, was about three, we were coming out of our house to go to the park one morning. And he was so excited about getting to the park, he let go of my hand and ran straight across the road. Totally forgot he wasn't meant to do that. At just as this speeding car was coming past, and the car missed him by a hair's breadth. It was so frightening. Tom had barely noticed the car, of course. What was I to do as a good parent? Well, I gave him a consequence he didn't like. Enough to make him cry. Enough so that he never ran across the road again, and he never has. 16 now. It's not my responsibility anymore. He can cross the road how he wants. I was severe, but it was motivated by love. It was the kindest thing to do. And that's what I mean by goodness and severity coming together. Because I am a good parent, I give my children boundaries. And because I am a good parent, I am severe when those boundaries are crossed. God is the same with us. We couldn't call him good if he wasn't. Proverbs 3, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Let me ask you this, could you call God good if he allowed people to get away with murder? If there wasn't some sort of repercussion for the individuals who perpetrated things like the Holocaust or rape? What about theft or hatred? No. You couldn't call God good unless he gives consequences for the evil actions of men and women. And therefore, his severity is rightly linked to his goodness. His severity is indeed part of his goodness. We cannot call God good unless we can also call him severe. 
Now, most of us would happily agree that we cannot call God good unless he is completely and wholly good. Oh, yes, God is very good, but he likes to whack old ladies around the head at bus stops. No. And if even the slightest bit of bad existed within him, we could not call him good. We can get our heads around that quite easily, right? But if that is true, then it is also true that we cannot call God severe, or just might be a better word here, cannot call him just unless he is completely and wholly just. If there is even a small part of him that lets people get away with bad things, with stepping outside of those good boundaries he's rightly given us, then how can we call him just? And in that case, how can we call him good? We can only call God good if he is wholly good and wholly just, or wholly good and wholly severe. Otherwise, we can't call him good at all. So what does his complete justice, his complete severity look like? Well, God made it very clear before one of us chose to turn away from him that the wages of sin is death. What you get when you sin, when you step outside of those boundaries is death. He made that very clear to Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. If you choose a life apart from me, you will die actually die. Maybe not today because I'm merciful and I want to give you a chance for repentance, but you won't live forever like you were meant to. And you see that God is serious about this throughout the Bible, from Noah and all those people wiped out in the floods, to all those nations intent on nothing but evil, to those animals which stood in the place of God's people to atone for their sin, to Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. We can't deny that it's there. The wages of sin is death. The consequences for sin, for stepping outside of the boundaries, is death. Actual death. Ever so lighthearted, this sermon. Why? Why death? Well, we see in the Bible that God is not only good, but that he is the source of all goodness. Nothing good in all of creation, in everything you see, nothing good exists that hasn't come from him that has not originated in who he is. I think we take that for granted often, don't we? We see so much of God's goodness in the world. James 1, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every good gift comes from him, and life is the most precious gift we have, and it is given to us and sustained by God. And so if we choose to step away from God's goodness... If we choose to step away from him giving us life, then naturally we choose death. In the same way that if I was being kept alive in a hospital by a ventilator and I chose to pull the plug to step away from it, I too would die, right? If God is the source of all life and we choose to step away from that, then we are choosing death. Now, of course, it's perfectly possible to look at the way that God deals with sin so severely and come to the conclusion that he is distant and angry. Why the obsession with sin? Why not chill out a bit? It's the 21st century after all. So to illustrate this, I need to admit something to you, okay? Something which uh, lots of people might, might experience feelings of hatred towards me when they find this out right, but I cannot help it. I am on, I'm trying to get better, but I am not an animal lover. Okay. I'm not an animal lover in any way. Sometimes people say to me, Becky, are you a cat person or a dog person? Why? What sort of question even is that? 
I'm neither. Okay, but the Lord in his great wisdom has seen fit to give me a daughter who is obsessed with animals. She's like the epitome of an animal lover. Okay, and so she has this pair of rabbits and um, she's, you know, she loves them like she gave birth to them herself. She didn't, but that is how she loves them. Okay, oh, so this is what I mean. We don't need the silliness. It's just a pair of rabbits. (laughs) Anyway, So she's got these rabbits, and then one day they start fighting, okay? And I don't know if you know anything about rabbits, but once rabbits start fighting, they won't stop. They will fight to the death, and even if you put them apart for like three years, they will still remember, hold on, we were in the middle of a fight, and they will carry on fighting. And so my daughter is heartbroken about these rabbits fighting. She is absolutely heartbroken. And so she becomes obsessed with finding the cure. And so she researches on the internet, and apparently what you've got to do is you've got to put these rabbits in a neutral territory where they've never been before, and then you go through this complicated rebonding process. So she sticks them in the downstairs bathroom, and she lives in the downstairs bathroom, I kid you not, for three days and three nights with these rabbits. And when she emerges disheveled and covered in rabbit fur, she is triumphant, and the rabbits are now friends. Praise God. (laughs) Katie loved those rabbits, and she wanted them to be free of their bad behavior, not because she is angry and distant, but because she loves them, out of love for them. And it makes me so sad when people misunderstand this about God. God's obsession with our sin is actually his love for us, isn't it? It's his obsession with our freedom. It's his obsession with our wholeness. He loves us so much that he will not treat our sin lightly or brush it away or leave us in the mess that we are in. God hates sin because sin robs the children he loves of everything good. Sin has ruined everything. We can see the evidence of this all around us, can't we? I mean, you really, you only have to glance at the news to see it's the vulnerable who suffer the most. Only last week we heard about a sweet teenage boy abused for months and then beaten to death by his stepdad. That is why God hates sin, because it robs the people he loves. It hurts the vulnerable. What sort of God would he be if he stood back and said, you do you? That's not a good God. That's an indifferent God. That's a God who couldn't care less. The wages of sin is death because God loves us. He is motivated by love through and through. It is so important that we understand this or we will have a really wrong view of who God is. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Sin robs us of every good thing. And the worst thing it robs us of is relationship with God. You and I were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But our sin has gotten in the way of that. We know that, don't we? All of us have chosen, all of us have chosen to step away from God and to step outside of the good boundaries he's given us. Don't sit here this morning and think that this doesn't apply to you. It applies to all of us. I know it applies to me. I know it so much. Romans 3, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we come to the real problem. We've seen that part of God's goodness is his severity and his justice. We cannot call God good or loving if he lets people get away with bad things. If he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But the problem is that all of us have done bad things. 
How can a good God who has to be severe with sin or we cannot call him good save us, the children that he loves, from death? The wages of sin is death. What can he do? He does this. This is why Christianity centers around something so despicably violent. This is what people can't get their heads around. God says, I cannot separate my goodness from my severity. Your sin has to be paid for somehow. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour all my wrath, all my judgment, all my severity on my son instead of you. My perfect son who has never for a moment stepped outside of the boundaries is going to take all of it on himself. He is going to die in your place. He is going to pay your price. Your sin is going to be placed on my son who I love so much. When I was younger, I used to think, why would a good God send his son to do his dirty work for him? I genuinely thought, why didn't he do it himself? And then in the autumn of 2005, I had my own son. And I remember looking at him and thinking, now I get it. I would do anything to protect him. I would happily, you know, run in front of a bus to save him. God gave us his only son because he wanted to show us how much he loved us. He wanted to say, I'm giving you my best. Don't look at my severity and think I don't love you. Don't look at my judgment and think I don't love you. I'm giving you my son, not because I'm a cruel and vengeful God who couldn't care less about his son, but because I love you, because I care about you. And so God nailed his only son to a tree and he poured all his rightful wrath and his judgment upon him. Do you ever think about this? We say that when Jesus died on the cross, he justified us. It was just as if we'd never sinned. But if you follow that logically, that means it's just as if he had. When Jesus hung on that cross, he hung there as a rapist. He was a rapist on that cross. He was a murderer. It was as if he had done that himself. He was a child molester, the instigator of genocide. And if, you, if we think that our sin isn't that bad, we miss the point. It's not about the outward working of those sins. It's about the heart. It breaks my heart to think that he hung there for my greed, for my judgmental finger-pointing attitude, for my racism, my lust, my arrogance, my selfishness. He did that. He took that all upon himself even though he'd never known a second of guilt or shame. And even that wasn't the worst part, was it? This perfectly unified father and son who had enjoyed this beautiful relationship, the two of them and the Holy Spirit, for the whole of eternity, they were ripped apart. The pure holiness of God couldn't look upon the ugly sin of Jesus. He had to turn his face away. Jesus was separated so that we could be reconciled. He was broken so that we could be made whole. He was guilty so that we could be innocent. He was a sinner so that we could be sinners. He was bound so that we could go free. He was pushed aside so that we could be drawn close. That, that is what a good God looks like. That is what a good God does. Don't tell me he's not good. It breaks my heart when the world thinks he's not good. He is good. He's nothing but good. He's all good, always, all the time. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are free. We're free from our sin and our shame because of God's goodness and his severity. At the cross, God's goodness and severity met in perfect harmony and set us free. But the problem is that we have tried to divorce his goodness and his severity in our day. And what we have achieved is a religion that is useless and worthless. If God isn't severe, if sin isn't a problem, then we don't need saving. If God is just some sort of cosmic marshmallow, all fluffy and good, we don't really need him, do we? What is the point of Christianity? J.I. Packer says this, We are left with a kind God who means well but cannot insulate his children from trouble and grief. And that is the conclusion our society has reached. If all people hear about is God's impotent goodness, they cannot see their need for him, and we are doing them a terrible disservice. This is a quote from Spurgeon. He's talking to a surgeon, which makes it a little bit confusing, but he's talking to a doctor. He says this, Ho, ho, Sir Surgeon. I can't do Spurgeon's voice. You are too delicate to tell the man that he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without them knowing it. You therefore flatter them, and what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves. At last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumbers from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. As Christians, we have begun to believe what society speaks over us, I think. We've listened to the lie that the message we carry isn't good, that the message we carry isn't kind, that the message we carry isn't tolerant. Our society tells us true compassion and true tolerance is in permissiveness. But as we've seen this morning, that just is not true. The message we carry is the only hope for our world. The only hope. The message we carry is what true tolerance and true love and true kindness look like. Anything less is just indifference nicely packaged. Indifference nicely packaged is what the world is giving people. You do you. Often, not always, but often is just another way of saying I couldn't care less. Rebecca McLaughlin, this is the ultimate scandal of the Christian faith. The worst criminal can be welcomed. The worst criminal, that's true tolerance. The worst criminal can be welcomed, and that is good news for us because we are more sinful than we realize. But in Christ, we can be more known, more loved, and more truly alive than we have ever dreamed. So as we draw to a close, how do we outwork this? What is the application for our lives? Do we get up tomorrow and knock on our neighbor's door and tell them they're sinners destined for hell? No, please don't. We're all sinners, right? Out of gratitude for the incredible way that this good God has saved us, we seek to reflect that goodness to everyone we meet, right? That's obvious, isn't it? Galatians 6, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. But 
Whilst we do that, if we really love people, then we will continuously and obsessively and passionately look for and create opportunities to share the gospel with people. 1 Peter, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You know, obviously what I've preached this morning is not an excuse for us to get our Bibles out and start bashing people over the heads with it. It's not an excuse to go around judgmentally finger-pointing at people, but it is, shows us all the more the reason to love people so well that we're bold enough to share the gospel with them. What about us? What about our sin? Do you take your sin seriously? Our sin hung God's only son on a cross. I love Jesus so much. I feel so grateful that he has made a way for me to know God intimately. That is worth everything. Do you feel the gravity of that? Or do you play fast and loose with sin? We should hate our sin. We should hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We should be those whose lives are marked by a longing for purity, whose lives are marked by wanting to become more and more like Jesus. You know, I know there'll be people sat here in front of me who are struggling with sin at the moment. You know, don't leave it to fester. Today, speak to someone you trust. Get some prayer. God wants you to be free of that because he loves you. Lastly, and most importantly, if you're not a Christian here this morning, then I beg you, I beg you to consider this. You stand on shaky ground. There is nothing, nothing shielding you from the wrath the severity, the judgment of a holy good God. Nothing. Our sin has to be paid for one way or another. We've seen that this morning. Because God is a gentleman, he will not force his rescue on you. Just because Jesus died doesn't mean you're off the hook. You have to make a choice. When you stand before God at the end of your days, you either choose to take the consequences for your sin yourself or you choose to let Jesus do it for you to choose Jesus. Becoming a Christian is simply this, admitting that you have stepped outside of God's good boundaries and that you need Jesus to save you from your sin and from God's wrath. And if you choose that today, then Jesus' perfection, his death in your place will forever shield you from the severity of God. And instead, you will be welcomed in as a son or a daughter into his arms. He loves you. Maybe there's some people in the building right now God, that you can feel in your heart that God is speaking to you. Don't go without, without making that commitment to him. I'm going to pray and then Luke is going to lead us in a time of response. Yeah, God, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you have not left us in our sin. God, we thank you that you have been severe with sin. But God, we are so grateful that you did not pour that severity out on us, but you poured it out on your only son. God, that is what real goodness looks like. And we are so grateful to you, Jesus. We're so grateful to you, God. We love you. Thank you that you made a way for us to know you. We will be forever grateful for that, Lord God. And we just want to honor you. We want to say we want to be people whose lives are marked by a longing for purity. We know we can never be perfect. We're grateful that Jesus has done it in our place, but we want to be more and more like you, Jesus. We want to run hard after you. We love who you are. Thank you that you are always good. Amen.